talking about this, uh, what it means to be, or what the word Christian means. It's a series that we've borrowed from a guy named Andy Stanley. Um, and you can go online and check out his series online if you want to. What we've discovered that is that Christian doesn't necessarily mean what we expect that it means. The term Christian is actually only used three times in the Bible. It's never used by followers of Christ. It's used by people who are outside of the faith looking in, and oftentimes it's used as kind of a derogatory term. And so what we found out is that there's really no good definition for the term Christian in the Bible, but there is a good definition for what um, hopefully we would call ourselves. Does anybody remember what that term is? Disciples, exactly. And so as followers of Christ, we call ourselves disciples. And being a disciple or a follower of Christ is actually very well defined in Scripture. Jesus said that his followers or his disciples are, are to be salt and are to be light. He said things like, people will know you're my followers by your love for each other. And so even though that term Christian might not truly mean exactly what we thought, you can call yourself a Christian and you can be and do pretty much anything you want to. You can call yourself a Christian and you can believe and act in just about any way possible. But Jesus laid it out pretty clearly that for anyone that chooses to be his disciple or his followers, there are certain things that are expected. And so this morning we're going to continue on in the series. And uh, the title of the message is called Loopholes. So you're familiar with what a loophole is? A loophole is a way of getting around a rule or a law. And, uh, and the thing about loopholes is that they come naturally to us. Nobody has to teach us how to find a loophole. Nobody has to teach us where to look for a loophole. Um, you know, it starts very young. And uh, just to give you an example, but we were in Florida a couple of years ago with my, uh, with my parents. We go down to visit them every year, and they usually take us to, like, Disney or to Universal Studios. And so a couple of years ago, we were at Universal Studios, and Eden, uh, my youngest, was about eight at the time, and she was a little shorter than she is now, and she's not very tall to begin with. And she wanted to go on this ride, and I, can't, I think it was the Rockstar ride, and it's a super fast roller coaster, and there's a, a height restriction on it. And we were like, oh, we don't really know. And so my parents said, well, just go and stand on your tiptoes, and you'll get on the ride. And so Eden did that and she got on the ride and she gained a love for roller coasters. Then last year when we went to Canada's Wonderland, um, I went with them. Krista was working for the day. So I went with them and the girls dressed themselves and we're in the car and we get out in the parking lot and Eden's got on these like two inch high um, wedge shoes and I'm like, Eden, did you bring something that's going to be comfortable to walk in? And she's like, nope, this is all I brought. And she, so she managed to get on every roller coaster because of that loophole. But it's not, it's, uh, you know, it's not just little people. Um, adults find loopholes too. And there's whole professions that are dedicated to trying to find loopholes. The legal profession, there's two types of lawyers. There's lawyers who make the laws and uphold the laws, and there's lawyers who defend people and try to find loopholes to get them around the laws that are written. Tax time is coming up. And I listen to 680 News on my way into work every day, and every single day I hear an ad from Daryl Hayashi, tax professional. And what he says is, if you're having tax troubles, come to me, and I'll help you find a loophole around your tax problems in a way to save you money or to get you more money back on your return. Um, so there, there's lots of ways to find loopholes. And just so you know, I found loopholes myself. We're not exempt. Nobody's exempt from loopholes. When I was in grade um, five, 
I was, I used to have a friend, and we'd sleep over at each other's house intermittently every once in a while. And uh, this one time, well, my mom would always say, are their parents going to be at home? And I would always say yes. But this one time in particular, I knew his parents were going to be going to a party. And I knew his parents were like hard partiers. They would go out, and they would drink, and they would party, and sometimes they wouldn't come back until like the break of dawn. And so I knew that at some point, his parents were going to be home from the party, but I know that's also what my parents were thinking. They were thinking they're going to be there the whole time. But I knew they were going to be home at some point. So I said, yeah, sure, Mom. Her, his parents are going to be there. And so I found a loophole. I didn't technically lie. Um, so here's the thing. People always look for loopholes. We always look for ways to get around rules. And the reason I bring this up is that Christians love loopholes. And not just Christians. People of all religions love loopholes. Every religion has a rule book, a book that they follow, a book of laws, a document, a list of rules. But every religion also has theologians or people that examine those laws and look for ways to either follow them or to get around them when it's convenient. So it, it's, it's great because in religion you can be a part of a group of, of people that have the same beliefs as you and the same values as you and you can feel supported in community. But if you want to, you can look to those theologians and find ways to get around those rules when it's convenient for you. And it's true of all religions. Um, when I was little, or when I was in, uh, in elementary school, I, I, in my neighborhood there was two groups of kids. There was the kids that went to the Catholic school and there was the kids that went to the elementary school. And every day after school, we'd get together and we'd either play ball hockey on the street and it was the Catholics versus the non-Catholics or we'd have, you know, wars with like chestnuts and try to bean each other with them. And we were always, those of us that weren't Catholics, we were so jealous because the Catholic kids would do whatever they want, behave however they want. They had potty mouth. They didn't, you know, and then at the end of the week, they'd go and they'd go to confession and they'd be forgiven of it all. And then the next week, they just started all back up again. And so we were like, wow, man, it must be nice to be Catholic. But then as I grew older, I realized that that's not how it's supposed to work. They were totally taking advantage of the system that was in place that was meant to give them forgiveness and meant to, to help them along, along their path to knowing Christ more. But when I grew up, we also had our, our own kind of system of this. We had a verse. Is anybody familiar with 1 John 1.9? A few people? Nobody? Nobody's from, well, this is what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we were taught, okay, you go out, and during the course of the day, you're going you're gonna to screw up. You're going to do things that are going to fill up your sin bucket. And then you go home at the end of the day, and you get on your knees, and you say, Jesus, I really messed up today. Can you forgive me? And Jesus, um, that verse says that Jesus will forgive us, and God forgives all our sins, and he wipes our slate clean. And here's the kicker. He actually forgets. God chooses to forget those sins that we have. So God doesn't choose not to remember your sin. It's a great system. So the next night, I would come home and say, God, I screwed up again. I did the same thing. And he's like, huh? What same thing? I don't remember what you're talking about. And he would still forgive. But the truth is that when you begin to ask a different set of questions, like followers of Jesus do, you quit looking for loopholes and you quit looking for workarounds because it's dangerous to be a loophole Christian. Because like we've been saying throughout this series, you can be a loophole Christian and you can believe just about anything. You can be a loophole Christian and you can get away with anything. You can be on both sides of every issue. People have hated other people with a verse. 
People have persecuted the Jews with a verse. People have put other races into slavery with a verse. People have persecuted homosexuals with a verse. And then when somebody confronts them, they go to the one or two verses in the Bible that say something about it, and they found a way to make those one or two verses more important than the entire message of Jesus Christ, than the entire message of his apostles, the entire message of the New Testament, the message to love one another. In all those situations, people have found a way to disregard the main teaching of Jesus, to, to mistreat people for whom Jesus died by using, actually using his Father's words to do it. And throughout history, that's what, what, uh, what Christians have done. That's what loophole Christians continue to do. And Jesus ran into this all the time. When Jesus showed up, um, the law of Moses had been given way, way, way beforehand. But by the time Jesus showed up, the religious leaders and the Pharisees in particular, they were so in love with the commands that had been given that they had forgotten the intent of the commander. Now, the Pharisees fell so in love with the commands, they came up with extra commands. So they came up, there was the commands of God that were written in Scripture, and then there were the commands that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had made up to help people not even get close to breaking the laws that God had written. And so they, they made up laws to help prevent people from accidentally violating the real commands. They had made up rules to keep people from breaking the actual rules. And so by the time Jesus showed up on the scene, they had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these made-up rules. And the thing is that they'd actually begun to equate these rules that they'd made up and put them on par at the same level with the rules that had been written in Scripture. And uh, they'd started to make these as important as the actual rules. And so we're going to look at uh, a, a conversation Jesus had with the Pharisees. And hopefully this conversation will discover something about Jesus and will discover something um, that will make us stop and sit up and think, am I a loophole Christian? And maybe um, make us stop and think before we start looking for loopholes. And here, here's what happens in Matthew chapter 15. Verse 1 says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And so here's the issue. They're asking Jesus, why? Why is it that your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Not, the tradition of the elders was that body of information that we talked about, the, those rules that had been made up to keep the Jews from breaking the actual laws. And so they came to Jesus and said, your disciples and you, you're not following the tradition of the elders. Not, you're not following Moses' law. They didn't care so much about that. It's the tradition of the elders that we created over time to keep people from breaking Moses' law. And what is it that they were doing? They were not washing their hands before they eat. So now those of you with young children are going to say, awesome, I gotta, I, now I have something to tell my kids. It says in the Bible you need to wash your hands before you eat, but that's, um, that's not actually what it says. And as much as I would encourage that, if you have young children, I'm an infection control professional. Please make sure your kids wash their hands before they eat. But that's not the point here. What Jesus is talking about and what the law was, was about, it wasn't the 11th commandment. It's something different. So in the law, the priests and only the priests were required to do a ceremonial washing before certain ceremonies. They would wash their hands, and they would go all the way up to their elbows, and they would do a really good job of cleaning their hands so that they were ceremonially pure for certain, um, for certain ceremonies that they had to do. But as time went by, the Pharisees thought, you know what? It's probably hard for these guys to remember to do that all the time. So let's just make it, uh, you know, across the board that all Jewish people have to wash their hands at a certain time, and then that way nobody will forget, and the, and the, um, and the priests won't ever mess up on it. 
And so it, be, it came to a point that, um, that this became part of, of what they did all the time. It, was, it became a part of their, their tradition and their religious law. And what happens is that they forgot about um, the intent of the law. And so Jesus actually um, just ignores their question because he realizes, you know, it's kind of ridiculous what they're talking about. And he says, I actually have a better one for you. And so Matthew goes on to say, Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? He says, if you want to talk about the law, let's get down and dirty. Let's get to the nitty gritty. Forget about the rules of the elders and go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. He says, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? He turns it around on them, and they'd probably be like, what are, you, what are you talking about? I thought we had it right. So Jesus goes on. He says, for God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Jesus says, have you, have you, you're so into your own rules, you've forgotten the basics. God said, honor your father and mother. Basically, that's in the top 10, right? Like, that's one of the, the top 10 that, that, uh, that Moses, laws that Moses received. Have you forgotten that? Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death. Now, aren't you glad that uh, we don't follow strictly the Old Testament law? How many of you would still be here if we, if we live by those verses? Probably none of us. So Jesus just kind of throws it right back at them. He says, you're upset with me and my disciples for breaking a law that you created to keep people from breaking the actual law. And the whole time, you're actually breaking the actual law that God gave to Moses. He points out that they've taken the command and they've twisted it to empower themselves to do the very opposite of what it is God had intended for them to do. Again, they're all about the commands and they forgot the intent of the commander. They forgot the intent of the law. And so they developed this loophole, this workaround. And here's what Jesus says about that. But you say, if anyone declares what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honor their father and mother with it. So that's probably a little confusing. Um, but here's essentially what Jesus was saying. So they had this command. It was one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, which is cool when you're an adolescent or you're, grow you know, you're growing up in your teens. But it's a little gets a little bit obscure once you're an older teen or once you're an adult and you've moved out. What does that mean to honor your father and mother? But they realized, wait a minute. This command wasn't um, given a timeline. Honor your father and mother. Moses didn't say until you're a certain age or until your parents are a certain age. It was flat out, honor your father and mother. That's indefinite. And when your parents start to get older, honoring your father and mother can get a little bit expensive. Honoring your father and mother takes more time. Honoring your father and mother requires more energy and, and, and more of everything from you. Um, and so they're like, okay, well, we want to keep the command of God but we don't necessarily want to spend all of our money and our time and our energy doing that. You know, some of our parents just live on and on and on. And of course, back then, they didn't have nursing homes where they could put their parents and have them um, looked after. And, uh, and so, they, so they, uh, they would take them home and they would care for them. So they came up with this great idea. There was uh, this little twist in the law that they made, and it had to do with dedicating everything to God. And so they came up with this rule. And what they would do is they would dedicate everything that they owned to God. And so when it came time to help their aging parents out, and dad might have been saying, you know what, I need some help to pay the rent this month. They would say, oh, dad, you know what, I'd really love to help you pay the rent, but I've dedicated everything I have to God. And if I took that from God, I'd be dishonoring God, and I wouldn't want to do that. Or they'd say, 
oh, mom, I know that, uh, you know, where you're living is kind of run down and, you know, you could probably use some help with mobility aids or something. And I'd, I'd really love to be able to help you out, but, you know, I can't really afford to because I've dedicated everything that I own to God, and I would be robbing from God. I need to hold on to everything I have in case, in case God needs it. You know, I'd, I'd love to help you out, Mom, but I just can't make it work. And so they'd actually, actually manufactured this rule to enable, to enable themselves not to support their parents without them breaking the law. And so Jesus says to them, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. You nullify the word of God for the sake of your traditions. But now, before we get um, all high and mighty on the Pharisees, let's think about whether or not this something might be something that we do. We probably have all done it at some point in our lives. We nullify, or in other words, we take the unclear and we fog the clear with it. We lean into the, I think it might say this. Or if we just look at it the right way, we can ignore what's in plain sight. We take, sometimes take what God says and we twist it, twist it in a way to suit our own purposes. And here's the bottom line. Here's the moral of the story. Jesus does not like it when we use his Father's words to avoid doing his Father's will. Christians do this all the time. Christians do this in a way that we kind of get into this pocket of, of Christians and we think, what we believe together is normal. And we think that the, we, we view things in the, in the lens of this, of, of this kind of twist that we believe together. And then we run into other little pockets of Christians who believe something a little differently. We probably call that a different denomination. And we say, they, they don't really read the Bible the same way that we do. They've got it kind of wrong. They've got it kind of twisted. And we think they just don't read the Bible right. It happens all the time. And if you spend enough time in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you can actually justify just about anything. You can start movements out of this stuff. You can be at odds with other church people, with other followers of Jesus, using the same Bible. How does that work? It's simple. You become a loophole Christian. You simply ignore the stuff that's inconvenient for you. You find the things that you don't agree with, and you ignore it. And you find the things that are convenient for you, and that's what you decide to follow. And you know what's interesting? If you've been in church for a while, um, for years, probably you'd have to be in church. There's these changes that occur over time. There's these big whoa things, the things that, you know, the taboo things for Christians, and they change over time every generation or so. And I can attest to this because when, my, when, um, when I was young, I was, my, my father and mother divorced, and my dad remarried um, a lady who'd been, who'd been brought up going to church. This was probably 35 years ago. And when they remarried and our families joined together, they decided, they decided that, you know what, maybe we should start taking the kids to church and we'll, you know, we'll give them some good morals and good teaching and stuff. And so they looked and they looked and they looked and we bounced around from church to church to church. And because they were remarried and because we had a blended family, I have a half brother and sister who are black and we were white and it was kind of like, whoa, that is a definite kind of family that's, that's not meant what God intended. We had a really hard time finding a church to go to because that at the time was the big whoa. Divorced people aren't allowed in evangelical churches. But over time, those things change and it could be interracial marriage. It could be whether or not you're allowed to drink. It could be whether or not, you know, it's different interpretations for different denominations. And the interesting thing is that there's 
these lists that theologians and churches and denominations will hold to over time of two or three things that are like the ultimate big things that you can or you can't do. The thing is about those lists is that they never match the lists in the Bible. If you look in the New Testament, there's some sin lists. There are things that, but there are things that you will never find these groups, groups of theologians or denominations or people. Um, you'll never find them holding up that whole list of things as equal. They pick two or three and they pick and choose. None of them, they're not, uh, there's some that are more important than others. And then when someone stops them and questions them and they say, well, what about you? You're not so generous. You're maybe not so loving or so kind. And they'll say, yeah, but I've dedicated everything I own to God. And so I've got to pass. And so Jesus shows up in a world uh, kind of like ours, which is a little bit different in some regards. But Jesus did the most brilliant thing. He pushed back and he said, Look, let's forget about the commands for a minute. I want to talk about the intent of the commander. Forget about all the details for a minute. I want to, talk, I want to take you back to what God had in mind when he gave the first command. And so we might ask ourselves sometimes, why in the world does God care? Why, does, why in the world did God um, mess with or worry about our morality? Why in the world would God tell us what to do in our marriages? Why in the world would God tell us how to raise our kids? Why in the world would God tell me how to be a good employee or a good employer? What's the point of it all? And so Jesus goes way, way back, and he says, let's start over. Let's start at the very beginning. And he goes back to the basics. It's kind of like this. I mentioned that uh, I'm an infection control practitioner. And so every month at our, at our, in our hospital system, we get a whole new group of employees, 100 to 200 new employees. And they're not all newbies. They're not all new to, the, to, um, to their jobs. Some of them have been working in healthcare for years. Some of them are just out of school. And so they should know um, their jobs when they're going into it and be really well-versed in the basics. But every month, what we do is an orientation with these people. And infection control... <clears throat> gets uh, half an hour or 45 minutes to spend with them. And when we get these new employees, what do you think it is that we teach them? How to care for, for patients that have Ebola? That's a little advanced for some of them. We take them all the way back to the very basics. Do you know how to wash your hands? Do you know when to wash your hands? These are the basics. This is how we're going to keep our patients safe. And that's what Jesus was doing here. Sometimes people just need a reminder. And so he says to his guys, I'm going to give you a new commandment. And this is it. Love one another. This is the beginning. It's the most basic, the most important thing. By this one thing, by how you love, this is how people will identify you with me. Not by where you attend church. Not by the things that you say. Not by your great theology or how you interpret certain verses but by the way you love. It'll be the one thing more than anything else that will communicate to the people around you that you are my followers. And then he said this, remember, as I have loved you, this is how you're supposed to love one another. And here's the cool thing about that. This actually took hold. Back when Jesus gave this command to his followers, they didn't have the written word. And so they would go back to, uh, once they would go back to their hometowns. They could be living in Rome. They could be living in Greece. They could be living in Jerusalem. They might not have even a copy of, of some of the chapters of the Old Testament. But what they had was this command to love one another. This is what drove them. And it became the filter through which they made every single relational decision. You have a marriage problem? 
Okay, we know what Paul says about marriage, but not everybody had the letters that Paul wrote. So let's back up a little. Let's talk about love one another. And this became their filter. And so, so after 20 years or so, Jesus had gone back to heaven, and the church is starting to spread. And there's a bunch of Christians in Rome, and they're living in the shadow of Nero's circus. And Nero's circus, he did things like fed Christians to lions. He did things like lighting them up as torches to light his gardens at night. He would chase them through the streets. And Paul writes these Christians a letter, and he goes back to the basic teaching, and he says, it all begins with this, love one another. And I want you to listen to how far Paul pushed this. Check it out. This is what he said. In Romans chapter 13, he said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Let no debt remain outstanding. In, in, In other words, pay off all of your debts. Don't let any of that remain outstanding. Except the continuing debt. You never, ever pay this debt off. And that continuing debt is to love one another. In other words, he says, followers of Jesus, I want you to wake up every day understanding that you are in debt to the people around you. Not financially in debt, because I said you're supposed to pay that debt off. You're in debt to love them. You owe it to them to love them. And you owe it to them to love them Why? Because of how God loved you. He loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. He loved you so much that he gave you his spirit to help you get by day to day. And if you were to say to God, God, thank you so much for loving me. What can I do for you? He would say what? Love one another. And here's the the kicker for loophole Christians. The kicker is what Paul says later. For whoever loves others, has fulfilled the law. Not for whoever obeys the Ten Commandments. Not for whoever whoever washes their hands all the way up to their elbows. Whoever loves one another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes on, in case we missed it, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. That's a big one. It's in the top ten. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other commandments there might be, Okay, in other words, he says, take a step back. You've got these written laws. You've got the laws that are written down. You've got the big ten, the ten commandments, adultery, murder, covering, coveting. And then he says, what other, whatever other commandments might be, which means whatever other verses that says, thou shalt or thou shalt not. Whatever other verses talk to us about how we ought to relate to each other in marriage. Whatever other verses that tell us how we ought to relate to each other in business. Whatever other verses tell us that God said to do your work as unto the Lord. The other stuff that you know is coming in terms of this is what you should do and this is what you shouldn't do. They're all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how powerful that is? How simplifying that can be. How clarifying it is. It almost makes it too clear for us, doesn't it? Paul says, love your neighbor. And when they asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, well, I'll tell you, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And they probably would have thought, all right, we can get that one down. But then he said, no, hold on. We don't stop there. There's another one. And that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And they would say, whoa, well, we got the first one down. And Jesus would say, no, you cannot have the first one without the second one. Without the second one, love God can be pretty meaningless. That, it works itself out in how you love your neighbor. And Christ said, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else comes next. Everything else is secondary. 
In other words, love one another, love your neighbor as yourself, is the filter through which we need to make every single relational decision. And the rest of Scripture, whatever it says, is simply commentary on that. It tells us some things that we might do in order to love one another. In other words, don't you dare, don't ever think about taking a verse or a passage or a block of Scripture or a story and use that to unlove someone else. That is never what Scripture was written for. It was never meant to be that way. See, disciples don't look for workarounds and loopholes. Christians do. Religious people do. But disciples don't open up the Bible and, and say, let's figure out how I can do the least, how little I can do. Disciples don't go, honey, it says that you're supposed to submit to me. Nah, 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 nah. Disciples don't do that. Disciples don't go, yeah? Well, it says that you're supposed to love me like Christ loved the church, so nah, 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 nah back. That's not what disciples do. Every day, disciples wake up and they ask this question, what does love require of me? Not simply, what does the Bible say? That can be so dangerous. It doesn't begin with, what does the Bible say? It begins with, how do I love my neighbor as myself? It begins with, love one another as Jesus loves me. It all begins with this question. In light of what's happening in my marriage, in light of what's happening at work, in my neighborhood, with my neighbors, at my school, with my boyfriend, with my girlfriend, with my prodigal son, with my kids that just don't get it, or my parents who don't understand. It begins with, what does love require of me? And that can be just a little too clear, can't it? For Christians, it's just sometimes too easy to look at our faith and to go back to Scripture and say, well, Scripture says this, and so I'm going to align my politics with these one or two verses that Scripture um, says. It's just too easy to have a whole group of people that we agree with and other groups that we don't agree with and, we, but, and, and that we don't get along with and that we argue with, but that's not what followers of Jesus do. And so when I say that, I know some of you will be listening and thinking, well, if I don't stand up for this or for that, then I'm compromising my beliefs but it has nothing to do with abandoning your faith. It has nothing to do with compromise. It has nothing to do with moving too far to the left or too far to the right. It has everything to do with looking someone in the eye and asking the question, in light of what is happening right here, in light of what's going on, in light of their past, in light of their current experience, what does love require of me? Remember last week Mark talked about the woman at the well? That's what Jesus did with her. Remember Mark talked about Matthew, the, the tax collector, who was in a whole different uh, category of people, lower than the lowest of sinners? That's exactly what Jesus did with him. Remember the criminal on the cross who had no chance at making things better for himself? That's what Jesus did with him. He didn't say, yeah, well, this is what the law says, so take that, suckers. He looked at their past experience. He looked at what's happening right now. He looked at, in light of what's going on, he looked at their current experience, and he said, what does love require of me? Jesus, Paul, and John all said that the law is all subservient. The law all comes underneath. The law is always secondary. The commands all flow from this whole idea of love one another, and what does love require of me? Now, I know that for some of you, things are, are probably bad at home. But you show me a husband and you show me a wife who wake up every single day and decide, I have a debt of love. Not, oh, I feel 
a warm feeling of love towards you. Because some of us may be at a point where we don't experience that. But you show me a husband and a wife who decide every single day, I owe a debt of love to my partner, to my spouse. And I'll show you a marriage that'll be transformed. A husband and a wife that decides, when I look at my husband and when I look at my wife, I'm going to start every conversation through the filter of what does love require of me? What if you parented that way? What if you were an employee, employee who worked that way or a boss who led that way? Can you imagine the transformation that might take place in our homes, the transformation that might take place in our community or in our workplaces or in our country, or maybe if we do it right, even in the world? Of, of course, it's complicated. This is not easy. It's hard stuff. It's, it's probably easier to go back to what Christians have always done and what they've always believed. To, to stick strictly to the law. And that's why there are Christians everywhere doing all kinds of stuff and believing all kinds of things. But that's not what followers of Jesus do. Because followers of Jesus wake up every day and they ask this tough question, what does love require of me? So where, do, where does that leave us? What if we decided that just for a week, for this next week, that we were going to try this? What if we decided that we're not even going to actually do what love requires of us? What if we decided that we're just going to ask that question and see what other options might come up before we start, yeah, well, blah, 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 or before we start with, honey, come here, I got something to tell you, or before we start with, sit down, son, we're going to lay down the law, or before we start with, no, Dad, I don't want to do that. What if we just decided we're going to stop and we're going to pause and we're going to think? We're not even committed to acting on it yet. But if we decide that just for the next week, every time we're eyeball to eyeball with someone, every time we're in a tough situation, every time we're in a relational situation, we stop, we pause, we ask the question, what does love require of me? And I'll tell you what, if you stop and just think that, if you start to do that, we know from history, from how quick the gospel and, and the, faith of, the faith of Jesus Christ spread throughout um, the land back, in, back when Christ had, after Christ had left. We know that that was a transformational question. And some of you will know from your own marriages, if you've had a difficult time in your marriages, and you've asked that question and decided to act out of what does love require of me, that that is transformational to your marriages. And some of you will know from watching your parents that that might have been a transformational question if they had asked that. So what does love require of you? Now, I've listened ahead in this series, and so I have an idea of what Mark's going to talk about next week, and he's going to tell you what specific things love might require of you. But I think if we're willing to live as followers of Jesus, what love requires of us has the power to transform our lives, the, the power to transform our families, the power to transform the lives of our coworkers, the lives of our neighbors, the people we come into contact with every day. People who are just looking in from the outside and might think, if we were to do just what love required of us, wow, those people are different. Those people treat their spouses differently. They treat their children differently. They treat the people around them differently. And they would ask, what's up with that? So for this week, let's see if we can just start to ask that question. What does love require of me? Can I pray with you? Father, we thank you for your word. 
we thank you that uh, you've given it as a history of your people and, and how you loved us and how you've shown that love to us. We thank you that um, you've given us this command to love one another. And we thank you that you were the example of that love and that you held nothing back when it came to loving us and that you still hold nothing back when it comes to loving us. And we thank you that you never looked for a loophole not to love us. And so I pray as we go through this next week that you would constantly remind us to ask that question. What is it that love requires of us? And that as we do that, you would transform our hearts and our minds and our spirits. And that as we do that, the people around us would see what a difference following you makes. What a difference love, your love, actually makes. And we ask that as we do that, we become more the people that you created us to be, the followers that you created us to be. Because we ask this in your name. Amen.